Hello, and welcome to the Second Chapter Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, bringing you amazing stories of women who have changed their lives and or careers after the age of 35. As my regular listeners will know, I am on a mission to shout to the world that women do not become invisible, but have stories to tell at every age, and to remind you that it's never too late to start your next chapter. So before I bring on this week's guests, I have a few requests to help you to help me on my mission. First of all, please subscribe and tell a friend to subscribe to the podcast. Let's start a movement. Secondly, I'm publishing a new newsletter. Same vibe as the second chapter podcast, positive stories of female power, the second chapter news, and a quote or two to get you thinking. I won't spam you, expect it every couple weeks, and I'm sending out the second chapter stickers to the first 100 subscribers. Sign up at thesecondchapterpodcast.com. I'll have one more favor to ask later in the episode, but for now, here's this week's show. This week, I'm speaking with Ellen Wakelam. Ellen was a teacher, but after becoming disillusioned with the role and a really long walk, she and her partner started In the Welsh Wind, a distillery firmly based in her native Wales. I love this episode almost as much as I love In the Welsh Wind's seriously tasty gin. Based on personal experience, I can say if you're making a martini with it, I recommend a lemon twist, not olive, and a Welsh cake on the side as per Ellen. Ellen and her team have also kindly offered a 10% discount, specially for listeners of the second chapter. Just enter second chapter in the discount code box. If you are within the UK, shipping is free over 40 pounds. Otherwise, you'll need to chat with the distillery to find out how you can get the amazing products from In the Welsh Wind shipped to you. Enjoy the episode. I struggle then sometimes because it just annoys me that they think that I can't do it. It just makes me cross. And then that fuels me into doing it and doing it better and doing it more and doing it harder. It needs to be bigger and better so that they, they have to turn around and go, oh, whoops, whoops. Like I should have recognized that you could do that in the first place. Hi, Ellen. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm really well. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you because you are involved with one of my favorite things, which is alcohol. <laughs> that seems to be a trend, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but you didn't start in alcohol. You're talking about, you're on the second chapter. So, you know, we're going to talk about change. Originally, you were a teacher. What led to teaching to begin with? I, I love geography. I love people and place and environment and living where I grew up in West Wales here. That was such a huge part of my life here. And I went off to university and did like environmental sciences and geography. And I just desperately wanted to still be a part of that world and share that kind of knowledge with people. So I went into um, secondary school teaching. So I taught from ages 11 to 18. You know, I absolutely love teaching. It turns out I don't love being a teacher in a formal setting. So that's where my second career came from is that whole this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to share my love of geography and people and place and work with young people. And actually when I was doing it, it turns out that wasn't the way that I was meant to be doing it. I, I know a few people that have studied geography and I have to say, I, I don't know many of them that are actually working in geography related fields. Yeah. Did it seem that was the only place that you, the only channel to be able to use it? Yeah. Pretty much. I didn't really want to do, I wasn't that keen on doing a master's or going further in like higher education. I wanted to actually do something. There's several teachers in my family. So it seemed like the natural kind of pathway to go down to be able to share what I loved about geography and get to work with young people and be a part of their education and growth and learning. It seems like you weren't doing it for particularly long. You're at the younger age of my second chapter <laughs> of requirements, but you got disillusioned pretty early, I guess. Yeah, I taught for nearly six years. I taught, I left, I left my home in West Wales to go and teach in the West Midlands in Wolverhampton. And it, that was a big change for me from very rural West Wales to going to live in like the Midland conurbation. And it was the first few years, I absolutely loved it. You're in the classroom all the time, you're teaching, you're with people, you get to share all of this, you know, cool stuff. And you're really enthusiastic as a young teacher, you've got time and you make all these fantastic resources and lessons and stuff like that and then it, it it felt then the more you're in teaching there's just this constant drive for continuous professional development and you're moving up the chain and where do you want to be next year and what is it you're going to achieve and how are you going to be a head of department and then a you know a deputy head and a head of 
humanities or whatever it was that I was going to do. And the more you do that, the less actual teaching time you do and the less of the bit that I loved I was doing. I worked in quite quite a tough secondary school. I absolutely adored the kids that I was working with. They came, they had real personality and they were very challenging at times. But I, I like that was I like that ability to have conversations with people. But yeah, it just it felt like the thing that I wanted to do, the, the teaching was becoming less and less. It's further and further up the ladder and you end up doing sort of more and more paperwork and more and more there's just more and more pressure to just constantly be moving forward and achieve and for me I cared about the students that I was working with and there's this massive drive in teaching to just constantly be pushing those A stars and A students and those CD borderline students and if you were anything under a D that was an absolute fail for some of my children they came this is their English was might be their third language they might have moved from a very long way away into a very low socioeconomic grouping now in the country and for them getting a a D or an E in geography was a massive achievement and I was incredibly proud of them but for the rest of the world and the government and the you know school ratings they were a failure and for me that just didn't sit right with how I looked at learning and education in a wider sense so yeah I did become disillusioned quite quickly and that was a massive thing to me because that's what I wanted to do I wanted to work with young people I thought being a teacher was going to be my thing and then it suddenly wasn't. And that was a huge shift for how I needed to rework what I was going to do next. It's funny to me because I think about, I come from a creative background. I guess you could say I was a designer. My partner is a prop maker now. He came from, he was a maker always. But both of us have talked about the fact that so often in creative careers that happens. Like the minute you, if you're any good at it, or if you work really hard at it, or however you want to phrase that, they want to start promoting you or yep. making you different than why you came to this career in the first place. And of course, a lot of people I've talked to for the podcast have had the same thing. It's like, I went into it for this reason and I didn't get to do what I wanted to do. Artists that I speak to that are like the amount of admin and marketing and selling yourself. And I didn't think about it so much with teaching, but it's such a shame that someone who comes in really young and vibrant and ready to teach. And I, I love these kids, but it's become so quickly not about loving the kids or teaching the kids. It becomes about something entirely different. Exactly. And teaching is there's such a clear career path. You're, you're a teacher, you become a head of year or a head of a department, you become a head of faculty, you become a deputy head, you become a headmaster, whatever it is, that is the path. And I could just see the next 30, 40 years panning out on this such defined path where, yes, there was opportunity to maybe move sideways in different levels, but actually that's what it was. And you were geared to that and you'd sit for, you know, three years as a teacher, then you'd be a head of department for a couple of years and you'd look for a humanity job and all right, you could move school and there might be different challenges in different schools, but actually it was going to be not the same every day, but it was just this, it was the same. You couldn't, you weren't going to get off that path. There was no real opportunity unless you absolutely left education to, to move anywhere. And that felt a bit, not trapped maybe, but just, it just, I hadn't really realized that's how it was going to be. And maybe that was just me being incredibly naive, but yeah, I just hadn't thought, oh God, in 30 years time, I don't really still want to be doing just this. I'd quite like to have branched out into more. And so that kind of, you know, led into why I ended up leaving is that I just wanted more. And sorry, I have to do this, but <laughs> you took not that path. You took very literally <laughs> a different path. Yes. Yeah. If my numbers are right, 1,047 miles of walking yep. to, I don't know, dare I say, discover yourself yep. or figure out what was next. Well, like I said earlier, you know, teaching, I had just gone into teaching thinking, right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be brilliant at it. I'm going to love every minute of it. And I'm, this is where I'm going to be in 30 years. This is great. And then when it all, when I realized this absolutely isn't what I want to be doing, I, now when I can look back on that period of time, everything just felt very beige. Everything was beige. I don't want to live in a beige world. I want to live in a rainbow world. I want to live where there's vibrancy and, and things going on. And I'd absolutely given so much of myself to teach in. And I think if you're a good 
motivated teaching, you do give so much of yourself to it that actually when I left and took a step back, I had forgotten who I was. I'd forgotten who Ellen was and what Ellen wanted. And I needed to do, you know, I came, I moved back from the Midlands. We came back home to West Wales where my partner, Alex, he was working in a local bar and restaurant. I just, for the first time in my life, really struggled. I got very anxious. I, I, I sort of struggled to get out of bed because I didn't have a plan and that's not, that's very unlike me. And I was just sort of bumbling along and I just couldn't find my rhythm again. And yeah, Alex was planning to run around Wales and be one of the first people to absolutely run the Welsh coast path. And he turned to me one day and said, look, I don't mind not running it, but why don't you walk it with me? Why don't we do this walk together? And I was really hesitant about it to start with because it's a thousand miles. Are you mad? <laughs> what? what? This is coming from somebody who can't, can, can barely go to the shop on their own at the moment. What are you talking about? I was going to say, you couldn't even, you were like, yeah. I didn't want to get out of bed. Yeah. I don't really want to walk a thousand miles. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It was just, but I think because it was just so out there that it actually was absolutely the right thing to do. And yeah, we, it also gave me something to do. Like I could plan it. Like I could look at how many miles was between this place and that place and how far we were going to walk. And then what did we need in rucksacks and where were we going to get water and food and how were we going to do it? So for me then that gave me, you know, a bit of purpose in my day while we were figuring, figuring things out. And then, yeah, we, you know, quite literally locked the front door of the house that we were renting, pushed the key through the letterbox and set off for three months. And yeah, we walked all the way around the uh, coast of Wales and then up off as Dyke, which separates Wales and England. So we, yeah, we absolutely circumnavigated Wales. Three months is surprising to me. That is a lot of walking per day. How much on average? It's not. It's actually not. Like we were slow. Like people do it much quicker than we did, but we, we stopped in places. It was not because we'd, I'd obviously left teaching and had a little bit of savings from that. And Alex got a little bit of savings. So we, we lived on corned beef bagels most of the time I still can't eat a bagel without having like PTSD from it but we it, we when we first started the plan the plan was oh yeah we'll be able to sort of just smash out 15 to 20 miles a day yeah no problem problem and then you get on the Welsh coast path and it is incredibly beautiful but it is not an easy path to walk some of it is much easier but a lot of cliffs and up and down and yeah, I think the first day we walked seven miles, I think I slept for about 15 hours that night. Like it was broken the next day. Very quickly then you could pick it up. And I think it was probably sort of 10 or 12 days into the walk. And it was really hot. Like it was one of the hottest summers I can remember. And we were walking. And then I finally heard that little voice that you get in your head that says, no, come on, you can do this. You've got this. This is, you're all right now. You could put one foot in front of the other. You can you absolutely can do this. And it's the first time that I'd really heard that inner voice that had got my back basically for such a long time. And it was a real, I remember it now because I, it was such a big thing. From that point on then, my, the whole thing shifted. Then we were in it. I was properly in it together. It was not, oh God, how much longer have we got to go today? And this is really hard. And I don't think I like this. And if I don't like this and I didn't like teaching, what am I going to do? And then suddenly it was, no, you can do this. You can walk to there. You can do 10 miles tomorrow. And then when we got round Hay and Y, we were we dropped our rucksacks off at the campsite and we'd caught a bus so we could go over the Brecon Beacons into Hay and Y. And we started running. I, I ran downhill. I ran my first ever mile. And it was like, again, this another light bulb moment went off and then the whole thing shifted. So for the, the second sort of half of the walk, we'd leave our rucksacks, we'd run part of the coastline. So this is somebody who hadn't really done anything to suddenly was running and, and loving it, which was a, which I tell you was probably the biggest shock of everything is that I actually enjoyed running. But yeah, it was all of these little things on the walk that then just cemented that, all right, teaching wasn't for me, but I was going to be okay. I was going to find something else and that I was a strong enough person to make that happen. If you told me in teaching that this is where I would be now, I would, this is just so far removed from that, that I wouldn't even have been able to imagine that this is a thing that I could do. I definitely want to backtrack a little bit for mm -hmm. people that are listening to that don't know that much about Wales, because yeah. I wasn't particularly familiar with Wales till I moved <laughs> to the UK. And I have to say, what you're saying about the coastline, I'm a triathlete. So I like to think <laughs> that, you know, I've cycled the Brecon Beacons. I know yeah. that this is not flat country. No. It is, however, incredibly beautiful country. So I can imagine that these walks 
as they're getting easier and as they're turning yeah. into some running and you really are just having, I don't know, I'm going to call it an awakening, but yeah. I just, I, I spent three days after separating from my ex-husband walking in the Midlands more. Yeah. And even those three days, just it definitely was there were moments that I, I've told people before that like my walk of sadness became this walk of hope and the countryside was so beautiful. So I'm just putting it out there for people that don't have a good picture that this is definitely a place that you can be it's inspired. Incredible. Yeah. And it's tough. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. I th- and I don't hold me to this, but I think the Pembrokeshire National Coast Path that goes around the National Park here, uh, I, th- I think if you walk the entirety of it, you do more elevation than Everest over the course of that 180 miles. So it's tough. It's not an easy thing to do. But I, I can't imagine anywhere, if you get West Wales, Ceredigion and Pembrokeshire on a good day, there is nowhere better. It's absolutely your, there's, there's no people for a start. There's <laughs> this beautiful coastline, crystal clear waters. You are out in the elements. You can walk for eight or nine miles on the coast path and never see a building or a shop or, or anything. So that kind of escapism was absolutely, I think, what I needed to come back to myself. And I'm not a big, I don't read lots of self-help books or any of those things, but I being, I think just genuinely being outside sometimes is such a massive resource for finding what you need. I don't know, it probably doesn't make any sense at all, but... It absolutely does, because <laughs> as a person that, I don't know, when I, when I look at my values mm-hmm. or what's important to me, one of the things that always comes up is walking. I just, and it's, it has nothing to do with actual, it has something to do with putting one foot in front of the other. But really it is exactly what you just said, that there's something about being out, not around as many people, yeah. rugged coastline, mm-hmm. whatever that is in, in, in a wooded area, I absolutely yeah. find something because cause it's quiet. Yeah. There's just quiet and yeah. I think it's just you. It's just you and it's just your thoughts and there's nothing to distract you. I don't, I still do it now. I'll still go for a walk. I I don't take my phone with me. I don't, I don't take pictures of what I'm doing. I don't have to think about all of the other things and it's just me. And there's something, it's like like beautiful monotony of one foot in front of the other. You don't have to think about that. Your body will just naturally do that. Therefore, you've got time to process and access the things that are going on in your, your brain and your thoughts and your emotions. And I think... Yeah, just I still do it now. If I'm if there's something stressful going on, if I've had an email that I need to really think about, I'll go and walk out and I'll just, you know, walk walk fields here and just give myself that little bit of time before I have to respond to something because it just gives me that little moment of clarity, I think. You weren't doing anything hospitality related, but your partner had been working restaurant mm-hmm. bar kind of thing. Was there any what was the moment that you saw something along the trail or that you made a decision what kind of inspired in the Welsh wind yeah so while we were doing this walk it it absolutely cemented that we wanted to do something together so when we came home we that was the goal let's do something together because when I was teaching Alex had gone back to to study and, and work and when you're teaching it's very much a closed door he couldn't come in and see me be a teacher he couldn't be a part of my working life so it was really important for him that we were working together that we were a part of each other's lives if we were away from each other for eight hours of the day let's be together for eight hours of the day and we came back and there was probably I think probably a year two years or something like that in between the walk and and setting up in the Welsh wind so we did a few things. We we tried to start a food business together. We helped with his parents' holiday accommodation and that kind of thing. And then after quite a busy summer of serving food to the guests that came and stayed there, we we took our son that we'd had at that point, who was just over one, up to Scotland in the camper van. And we did all of the North Coast 500, which is 500 miles all the way around the north north coast of Scotland. And we're, we're on holiday. We stopped in every distillery you find, because why wouldn't you stop and drink gin and whiskey and take samples and, and have a fantastic time? And we found Alex went into this tiny little shop in the middle of nowhere and found this bottle of gin. And he took it to the counter. I think he was you know, quite shocked at the price of it because it was a 40 plus pound bottle of gin, which we were big gin drinkers. So it wasn't, it was like, wow, a lot more than a you know, bottle of cheap vodka <laughs> right. to take away for the night. And we got it into the van and, and we were reading the back of it and we tasted it. I was like, wow, this is really tastes like what I think this part of Scotland feels like. 
And we found the, the company on social media and we said, oh, look, can we come and visit you? Because we loved your gin. Please come and buy some more bottles for the rest of our journey. And they were like, yeah, we don't really have a shop, but yeah, you're welcome to come and see us. So we, we went and found them and they had this tiny little shed with a little still in it and they were just making some bottles. And we were, you know, asking questions like, how did you do this? Why did you do this? All these kind of things. And then we must have both been thinking the same thing because about three days later, we just turned to each other in the van and went, I think we could do that. Why can't we do that? Was then the kind of inspiration for In the Welsh Wind. The name actually came from the big walk. When we were walking, instead of having to like ring and phone every member of the family every night to, so that they knew that we were still alive and safe, we wrote a blog that was called In the Welsh Wind. And it comes from, if you're a spy you and you disappear, you go in the wind, you're lost in the wind. And then obviously we were then walking in the wind. I was a bit lost. We found ourselves so in the Welsh wind. It all made sense then. And we'd loved it so much that we always knew that when we found the thing that we were going to do, it was always going to be in the Welsh wind. So when we thought, right, let's, why not make gin? Let's have a distillery. Let's just do a little, make some gin, sell it locally. It'll be enough to keep me and Alex and us and TV. I'll be fine. We'll be happy with that. And that was then the birth of in the Welsh wind distillery. It's interesting you say that it came from the walk and the, the name and everything, because when I heard it, I just assumed what you were saying about Scotland, tasting this gin, that you, you could taste where it was made. And I know one of, one of my favorite gins, I cannot tell you the name of it now, and I shouldn't anyway, because I don't want to advertise for somebody else. <laughs> it's an Irish gin that tastes of the sea. And I envisioned in the Welsh wind, the taste of Wales, mm -hmm. if you will, windy. And like yeah. I said, some of the parts are rugged and things like that. So it goes along so well with what you're actually doing. That's it. Yeah. And when we first set up the business, the goal and the beautiful naivety of our first business plan and cash flow forecast. And I, every now and again, I dig it out to look at the fact that I thought we could genuinely spend a hundred pounds a month on marketing and we would be brilliant. Just like the beauty. <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful. I love it. It makes me very happy to look at it and just think, yeah, that's why you started a business because you had no idea what you were doing. We, we wanted to make 3000 bottles of gin a year. We we were approached by a friend of ours who owns a bar who said, oh, if you're making gin, can you make me 50 litres and I can sell it as our house gin off the bar? And we we're like, yeah, you want to give us a lump sum of money and then you have to take it away and do all of the work. Brilliant. So with that, we fell into custom spirits. So we made, we've made to date now, we probably have made about 50 different gins for about 30 different companies. And in all of that time, we never really developed our own gin because we were so busy making gin for the people. And then we finally decided that enough is enough. We're 18 months old. We have to have our own gin on the market now. So in the Welsh Wind Signature Style is an expression of this part of coastline. So we weren't, I have, we, I don't have time to go out and forage for lots of things. So we looked at different ways of showing what this part of the coastline is. So a lot of the botanicals, the ingredients, the flavors that you find in that gin, products that would have been brought in along the coastline at the ports here. So there's a little port up the, up the coastline here, Newquay, that's got, still got the landing board. So things that would come in on the boats and the prices of them. So nearly every botanical that we use is on those landing boards. So things like oranges, tea, currants, baking spices that have then become synonymous with Welsh baking and things like butterbreed and Welsh cakes. So we may not grow the botanicals here, but they are and they've been adopted as Welsh botanicals. And that kind of authenticity and feeling of community and place is what we try and run through everything that we do here. I'm just looking, it's 1227 in the afternoon here. So it's probably a little early for me to pour it's a glass It's never too early for gin. <laughs> I was like, as you're describing it, my mouth is literally frustrating. <laughs> so pathetic. But I was like... Oh, orange and tea and gin. And then I wanted a Welsh cake as well. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's a perfect accompaniment. <laughs> so obviously you planned on starting or only had aspirations to stay very small. That hasn't happened. Other than, okay, we're 18 months in, we have to make our own gin. What kind of changes? Who's come along that's made you want to grow, made you want to change? Yeah, we were in a, a tiny, it was, it used to be the old cow shed. Alex's parents, well, it used to be the old farm, dairy farm for the area. And it's all converted now, so there's no animals or it's not a farm anymore. But we'd come converted it and had the uh, still in there. And um, we needed to make gin. And <laughs> Alex and I had booked a holiday, for, like first ho abroad holiday. We went to Finland to see some snow with us. <laughs> so we had, to, we had to take on an employee so that we could go because we needed somebody to make the gin. So we took on a, an employee then. 
And then that very quickly grew to another two employees. So we had one person just helping us distill, one person helping us do website and social media and, and things, and then one person who would help us do all the bottling and labeling. So for a long time, for a year, it was only the five of us. And, but in that year, we had absolutely outgrown the space that we were in. So our first sort of really big challenge as a business was, well, what are we going to do? How, where are we going to go? Because we're already too big for the space that we thought we'd never grow out of. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we were just driving along the main road, the main coast road here in West Wales, and we passed uh, what is quite a landmark pub on the coast road here. And you know, it's, it's normally described as the beautifully ugly building. So it is an ugly building. It's not a beautiful building to look at, but it, in its ugliness, it is absolutely beautiful. So we'd always looked at it and Alex, I remember Alex saying, that would make a brilliant distillery. And I was like, Alex, are you insane? We've been going less than a year. We've got no money. How are we ever going to end up with enough money to be in a place like that? And Alex being Alex, he, the only way, he is steps one, two, and 10. And I have all of the steps in between, between us with a perfect combination. And he just went and spoke to the owners and said, look, if you're ever wanting to sell, please really let us know. And they said, well, actually it's been on the market for a year and we haven't really had any interest. So Alex came up with this brilliant, let give us a year. We've got no, we've got no money. We didn't tell them obviously, but give us a year. Let, let us move in. Let us do what we want to do there. And if in a year we haven't raised the money to buy it, then we leave. So it was a massive risk. And I was like, oh my, here we go. I hope you're enjoying the episode. I promised one more thing you could do to help the second chapter's mission. Would you buy me a coffee? Yes, I love coffee, but this one's virtual. If you like what you're listening to, head over to coffee.com, that's K-O-F-I.com, and support the podcast by buying me a coffee or lots of them. There's also a button you can click at thesecondchapterpodcast.com if that's easier. Thank you. Thank you as always so much for your support. Here we go. This is it. It's kind of, yeah, this is tough. I'm going to, I'm along for the ride now. Let's just go. We absolutely jumped in. And so we, we took it over in March, 2019. So we had a year to then enact the option to buy the premises. So we gutted it, we redid all the front. So at no point was there any possibility that we weren't going to raise the money for this because we absolutely committed to this place. And we worked with the Development Bank of Wales and they, uh, they gave us part of the loan and, and we raised some money for the other part of the loan. And we signed for this on March 18th, 2020. So if you know your date, that's three <laughs> days before the first <laughs> lockdown in the UK. I was like, this story is going very much toward lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you knew it. Yeah, yeah. So it was... Yeah, who doesn't take on a massive, great big building three days before the whole world basically shuts down for two years? So that was a huge, so just getting the building was a massive challenge. And then keeping the building has been the second sort of biggest challenge. We've grown from, so there were the five of us. And unfortunately, we took on a business manager in January 2020. So we were like, okay, let's do this. We've got this new building. We've bought, we're going to buy it. Let's plan events. Let's do things. Let's push. Let's have our own gin we'll do all this amazing stuff and then March came and we we had to furlough the three staff that we'd had with us first Joe went home to work from home and then there's just me and Alex and our son who was three at the time left in this great big building that we you know what were we going to do so is this building your home as well as the distillery? yeah we were yeah so we were staying here at the time just in like between moving from one house to another but we ended up being here for nearly 18 months then because we couldn't move because of restrictions and things like that so we were living above it working so it was just like 24 7 seven days a week just fun is the only word I'm going to use to describe it but yeah we were just alone in this great big building and yeah it was it's been a really interesting couple of years you know COVID has thrown up so many challenges for so many people but then we've also had some fantastic successes in those two years as well. So it's not all been bad. We survived. We're coming out the other end of it now, hopefully. We, the this kind of biggest thing that I'm the most proud of during the last two years is making hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to find, in the early part of March, we were trying to buy hand sanitizer and it, you just couldn't buy it anywhere. And Alex was like, how do we even make hand sanitizer? Is it something that we can do? And it turns out that the World Health Organization recommended hand rub formulation is basically four ingredients. 
of which we had all of in the distillery. So we made up like a bucket of hand sanitizer and put it into little bottles for our staff to use. And we put one photograph on Instagram of a bottle of hand sanitizer. And the, the, the quote underneath it was something like, you're doing something a bit different in the distillery today, helping to keep our staff safe. And from that one bottle on social media, we've ended up doing about 44,000 litres of hand sanitizer. I mean, it was a time that everybody, I know that the struggle I was having to go and buy hand sanitizer and it was like, you had to have it. You couldn't just, and every pharmacy, every chem, everybody around yeah. me was like, no, we haven't had it for weeks or, yeah. and I think, I don't know, probably my own slow to react type thing, but I'm not surprised, but it is interesting to be able to turn it around from ingredients that you already had in the Yeah, this is it. But then, then the struggle was, right. Because then we had people were ringing us, they were phoning us, I had to turn the answer phone message off on the phone because every time I took a phone call, there were three more answer phone messages. We had people queuing down the driveway to the distillery. They were bringing empty washing up liquid bottles, milk bottles, buckets, anything that they could get hand sanitizer in. And for the first sort of two or three weeks, we were just literally giving it away. If you could come, if you had something to put it in, take it away. Please be safe. Keep yourself safe. We had doctors, police officers, social services, the RNLI, you name it. I have donated, given, gifted any number of amounts of hand sanitizer. And then Joe from home was working with bigger companies and, and, and trying to get us some contracts and things. So we ended up making hand sanitizer for four of the Welsh councils. We at one point, every post person for Royal Mail in the South and West had a bottle of our hand sanitizer because we'd worked with our local post office to do that. And then they told their head office and they told their, and we suddenly we were doing all of this stuff, but we had a three-year-old and there's me and Alex, and we're doing thousands of these little 50 mil bottles. And my son learned to count by counting bottles of hand sanitizer. Cause you could fit five hand sanitizers in a row and you could get five rows of five before you needed to do a layer. And then you could get another layer and then you could close it. So he could count to five, like nobody's business. After that, got a little bit confused, but one to five, we were brilliant at by the end. That's one of those things that's like, tell me it's 2020 without saying it's 2020. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My son learned to count by counting bottles of hand sanitizer. <laughs> So other than the obvious COVID challenges, yeah. you're in an industry that does tend to be, as far as I know, fairly male dominated. Yeah. Have there been challenges, even though you have this business with your husband? Is it something that you've seen people being resistant to talk to you as an equal because you're a woman or, you know, just surprised that you're heading up this big? Yeah, I think so. It's stranger. And sometimes people are really receptive and they have no issue with the fact that I'm a woman running a business. And then other times you get people come to the door and I go and greet them and I'm, you know, like, oh, hi, I'm Ellen, you know, and they instantly are looking for the man. They're instantly looking for that male figure who is running the show. And obviously Alex and I work very closely together. Alex is very much the kind of creative, his palette is incredible for creating the gins and the big picture business part of the business but I'm very much the the paperwork the recording the making sure things are happening the keeping on top of everything and then Joe our business manager who it's with is it is the nice combination of both of those things right. <laughs> and then we've got Sally who does all of my PR HR everything she again the four of us balance each other out as well but yeah it, it, it is it's difficult because people sometimes just don't think that you can do what it is that you're saying that you can do. And I do, I struggle then sometimes because it just annoys me. It just annoys me that they think that I can't do it. It just makes me cross. And then that fuels me into doing it and doing it better and doing it more and doing it harder or whatever it is that I'm doing. I, it needs to be bigger and better so that they, they have to turn around and go, oh, whoops, whoops. I should have recognized that you could do that in the first place. Yeah, it annoys me that I even have to ask that question, but I was looking at it just going, you know what, you don't see a woman heading up a distillery very often. And, you know, whether it's with a partner, whether it's, and yeah, it's the any kind of business, I think yeah. there is still that tendency. I've had somebody come around here once, somebody that I had called as like a tradesperson mm -hmm. and said, can I talk to the mister or something? And yeah. I was like, I own this flat. <laughs> I called you. This is 2020. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I get, can I speak to the boss? Yep. Speaking. It, it's me. I'm here. <laughs> we talked a lot about gin, but you're not yeah. just making gin. And I was really excited to read about whiskey because I love whiskey and that you're growing grains for whiskey. And yeah. 
And I know that distilling, but they're very different as far as I can understand. Mm -hmm. So tell me a bit about this newer whiskey project. Yeah. So when I first was starting the business with Alex, it was just gin. And I think Alex always had this kind of inkling, this kind of secret. I'm not going to tell anyone about this thing yet because it's going to throw her, but I'll just wait a little while to, to let this come through. And yeah, whiskey is so, whiskey is a really special liquid. It's, it's of the land. And for us here in this community, we're, we're a farming community. That's what everything, farming and fishing and the ports here were, were about. So whiskey was in the kind of natural progression of where we wanted to go. Heavily influenced by Alex wanting to make whiskey because he loves whiskey. So that's okay. <laughs> but for us then, we looked at how can we make this whiskey as authentic as possible, as well as Kedadigyo on the county that we're in as we can possibly make it. And for us then, it was an absolute no-brainer that we wanted to grow our own barley. I know that barley grows here. It's mainly grown here because it's used for cattle feed. But wouldn't it be an incredible thing if we could grow barley and make money from it? That, you know, that we could genuinely boost the Welsh economy in so many different ways if we could prove that we could grow and make something incredible from barley. So we dug up the front field at the distillery here and we put down our first barley. And the really sad part of that was, is that it happened two weeks after the first lockdown. So there was no one here to see it. And it was this incredibly big moment for us. And we had to like FaceTime Joe so that Joe could see it because obviously he couldn't be here. And it was just this, it was this like beautifully happy, sad moment. But yeah, we, we grew our first barley in 2020. So it was ready to be harvested in 2021. Yeah, we grow our own barley here. Sean, our farmer from the local farm comes and he, har- he grows it with us, harvests it, takes it back to the farm to dry it. And then he delivers it to us in like one ton bags. On, they've arrived this morning on the back of a trailer. You know, this is, you know, very rural and, and easygoing here. We then malt it in-house. So we don't send it away to be kiln-dried. If we wanted to send it away to be kiln-dried, which kind of is the, the standard practice for whiskey, it would have to go all the way over to East Anglia to be dried in this really hot oven using a huge amount of electricity and energy and then be transported all the way back to us. And that for us just didn't sit right. So we looked at alternative ways of doing it. So we green malt here. So we take the barley, we put it into a steep tank. So basically we wet it and dry it over the course of about three days. And then we lay it out on the floor. We've got a malting floor in house now. Sounds very posh. It's just floor that we <laughs> barricade in with a bit of wood and we rake it out and we turn it over. But yeah, we do all that on the floor here. So it sits there for sort of four or five days in it. And essentially what we're trying to do is make that grain think that it's underground and wants to grow. Because what I want it to do is I want it to use up its carbohydrate, its energy and convert it into sugar to grow. And then the sugar is what I access to make the, the whiskey, the alcohol from. So yeah, we do a lot, we turn it, then we sort of mince it. So it not pelletizes, but it, it, yeah, it's just minced up barley then. And we put that straight into our still. So we then distill on the grain. So other distilleries will take the liquid off that and use the liquid and distill the liquid, whereas we're still using that barley in the still to give us more flavour. At the moment, we have to use a, a, a yeast that we buy in, but we are working with our local university in Aberystwyth to create an ambient yeast. So in the next couple of years, we'll have that. So again, that's this another element of Wales and Cadidigion that we'll have in there. And then, yeah, we distill it on the grain. So it sits and ferments for a few days and then we distill it. And then what we get out at the other end is the new mixed spirit. So we've been producing that for properly, fully not in our experimentation phase for a couple of months now, you know, and, and it, it tastes amazing. The first part of whiskey is that new mixed spirit, that first bit of liquid that comes off the still. And the flavour there is the barley and the yeast that you've used to give you that fermentation. And we get these beautiful hints of melon, golden sultanas, fresh cut grass it's special if i think about all the people that have been involved in making it all of my staff that i've got here now and i've got 15 full-time staff now Oof. they all live within apart from joe who lives in in Bemmerich, we all live within like 20 minutes of the distillery they're all young enthusiastic staff the whiskey here truly speaks of this part of wales it's of the land it's of the people we work with the community and it's for me, it's something really special. It's something that no matter what else happens with the business, no matter what else we do, 
if we can get one bottle at three years and a day that can be called Welsh whiskey, that is is a hundred percent Welsh whiskey with grain grown within ten miles of the distillery, with water from the borehole that we've got out the back here that's been made with local people and the community in, in line, then for me, that is the kind of pinnacle legacy everything that we will ever have wanted to achieve here. So we've got a little bit of time to wait, 2024, 25, for it to be in a bottle. So I've got to keep going for another few years to get to that point. But to be able to create something like that is beyond what I ever would have dreamed that we would achieve here. It's interesting hearing you talk about the young people that are working with you as well, (laughs) because you very specifically said at the beginning, like, I want to teach people and I want to help people, young people. And Obviously, you've had so much to learn because this isn't something that you've no. always been doing. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about these grains and I'm just like, wow. And then you had to figure out how to yeah. green grain and what is that and how does that look? But then the fact that you're passing it on and that you're getting yeah. other people excited about this, that exactly. how that affects their life in the local community is really exciting. Because yeah. I think that's, again, it comes back to this whole, I love teaching. I don't love being a teacher, but I do so much teaching in my everyday like in my working life now, you know, we've been incredibly lucky. Another byproduct of COVID is that when all of these students finished at university, there was no jobs for them to go into. There was no career for them. A lot of, so they came home. Well, I've managed to snap them up and I've got them. And for the time that I've got them, I want them to be as brilliant as I know that they are. So we heavily invest in training. Everybody who comes does, there's four or five courses that every single person in the distillery has done. And then they get put on different courses for leadership, women in business, training, all of these different elements of things so that they're in their early 20s. I know they're not going to be with me. I hope that they're with me forever. They're probably not going to be with me forever. I don't want, they should be off doing other things and exploring things and going places and stuff like that. But when they do, I want their next employer to not be able to turn them down because they are so heavily skilled and qualified that they that nobody's going to say no to them and that for me is my goal and we are we're a strong female team here I've, i employ more females than men which is a bit of a skew for the distillery world but these the women i've got working with me here they're so talented they're just they're keen they're young they're motivated they want to do well they can see what we're doing here and why it's important and where the business is going and they're keen to just push forward all the time so even when I'm like oh my god I'm so tired (laughs) the alarms all went off at three o'clock in the morning last night I've had to come to the distillery I haven't slept I've had four hours sleep and they're there and they're like no no right let's go hey let's do this this is what we're doing in August and let's do that and I'm like yes yes just yes you're brilliant and it's just it's exciting to be a part of that and in any way shape or form think that by me owning a business and leading a business that that they can see that it's a possibility that you can do that that you can change career and do something entirely different that you have absolutely no qualifications in but be (laughs) successful at and I think that's a really nice thing to be the role model is a bit strong that person that they might see as doing a thing well, I'm going to call it a role model. <laughs> I think that's amazing. I also was joking with you. I wasn't even joking. But before we got on the call, I was saying that the podcast is so bad for me because I'm always so inspired by what, what people are doing that I'm like, oh, but looking at the photos on your website, I was like, please, I'm not a 20 something, but I'm very enthusiastic. Would you take an American <laughs> coming out to Wales from London? Seriously, it just looks like not seriously, you have to hire me, but seriously, it looks like such an amazing, beautiful place. And hearing you speak about it is so inspirational. I think it's, it is a special place. We're a long way away from anywhere. If you come from London, it's four hours from London. You've got to really want to be in Ceredigion to be here. You can get to Premiership quicker. It's closer to the M4. But for here, you know, we are an hour and 20 minutes from the end of the M4. And that is all little tiny back roads. It's not easy to get here. But once you come to Ceredigion, I think it gets into your blood. There's something about this place that is special. We get a lot of people who come on holiday here every year, who then retire here or move here. And and there is this, there is a real community here and it's a strong Welsh community. There is a lot of Welsh spoken here. They're very welcoming to people coming in or speaking English and it, it, it's, it's a really special place to be. And, and for me, it doesn't matter what we do with the business or where we go or how successful it is. It's always going to have a base here 
I don't, I personally don't want to live anywhere else. You know, if Alex wants to jet off somewhere, that's fine. <laughs> but you know, this for me, it, this, there is, it's just, I have to use the word special about a hundred times, but that's the only word I can think of to describe it here. And I think if you can get to Kedidigyan, have the opportunity to, to see the coastline and the people and the places and think, I think that's a, it would be a good thing for a lot of people. Like I said at the beginning, I knew so little about Wales before mm. moving to the UK, but it's definitely a place I've fallen in love with. I get there as, I, I go as often as I can because yeah. it's just special. I'm going to use yeah. your word. Oh I'm going on holiday tomorrow. I'm going all the way down to the Mumbles, which is an hour and a half away. That's how exciting my life is. And then in August, we're going to Anglesey, which is a whole two hours away. That's the thing with Wales is there's so many different little, it's not a big country. You can drive the whole thing in like less than four hours. But it takes three months to walk around it. It does. Exactly that. <laughs> and it's just, there's so many different amazing places here. It's just, it's wonderful. I agree. I did call you inspirational, but I ask you to bring a quote as well that might inspire you. Did you bring a quote for me? Well, I really struggled with this. And I looked, I, you know, I thought, okay, I looked online. I was like, right, inspirational quotes. What one sits in the best? Like, I don't, I just, I, I remember reading one that was something, it was, you should ask for forgiveness, not permission. And I, I'm not sure that it's my favorite one, but a lot of the time, the phrase that we use all the time at the distillery is, what's the worst that could happen? Which kind of sits with that. What's the worst that could happen? It's about calculated risk. Everything in business is about calculated risk. Is how much are we going to spend? How much are we going to make? Can we do this? Will this work? And all those sorts of things. But what is the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is it doesn't work. It doesn't succeed. You fail. But failure isn't the opposite of success. Failure is a, a learning. It's a curve. It's a step. All right, it didn't work. Why didn't it work? Let's learn something from that. And we have made big mistakes, little mistakes mistakes that have cost us a lot of money and mistakes that are you know easily solved and but from all of those you learn something so that phrase what's the worst that could happen it probably gets used far too often it is that genuinely what are the outcomes of this well if it's not death then let's let's have a go let's just do it let's try it at least and let's see how it works and if it doesn't work all right fine we'll try something else and I think that is that you know adds into the kind of flexibility of what we do and how we feel here I have to say when you're like, oh, I was like looking online inspirational quotes. To me, that's the eye roll version of inspirational quotes. Yeah. Whereas yeah. when it's something that every day you use yeah. and it applies to you, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. So even if it's something like, worse, what's the worst? I mean, I imagine when you were early days, especially all the custom gins and stuff, it was like, oh, let's try a handful of this. What's the worst yeah. that can happen? Because that's yeah. how you make a recipe to begin with. You don't yeah. start with perfect recipe, for example. So that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. So thank you for that quote, because <laughs> I'm sure today alone, I'll have to say that about 10 times. <laughs> well, this is it. And I think people overlook that. I think people genuinely, I am absolutely uh, guilty of this, is that I overthink so many things and I think about things and they roll around in my head. And it was, Alex will think a thing, make a decision. He's 15 steps down the line and I am still trying to get from step one to step two because I can't wrap my head around how we're going to do all of it. And then I do have to stop myself and think, what is the worst that can happen? All right, we go down this path. It doesn't work. Well, okay, let's go down a different path. You know, and it's, it's, I think for me in managing, you know, my mental health and making sure that I'm okay and that we're, that even though we're doing all this amazing stuff in the business, that me and Alex are still all right, it is sort of overthinking it. Just have a go. Try it. What's the worst that could happen? Okay, great. It worked. Fantastic. Let's move on. It is those sorts of things. And I think it's not just a business thing for me that it is like a personal like mantra as well. I have to just constantly remind myself, what is the worst that could happen? It's not that bad then, is it? Let's go. There's been a million different things that have been <laughs> completely new for you. You've had to say that so many times, but what's next? Is there something that's not secret that you that's on the radar that's the next big, what's the worst yeah. that could happen? So we've got, we've been, we've, we've worked hard. We've got planning permission at the distillery now to extend the building and build two big cask warehouses so we can properly lay down lots of whiskey and have lots of liquid and stuff like that but we've also got planning permission or pre-planning application for a education and resource center so at the moment in wales you basically can't train in distilling or spirits or whiskey or i think you can do some small courses in brewing but nothing that's internationally accredited qualification or anything so when we first started, Alex and I were like, one of us has got to go and do a course. We've got to learn how to do this properly. And it was either go to London for five days, which we couldn't afford. And we had a three-year-old, so it wasn't going to be easy for me and or him. And or you had to go to the very, very north of Scotland. Neither of those places were 
easy for somebody in West Wales to get to. And then when we take taken on staff, I'd love it if my distillers could go to Sheffield for five days, but I can't, A, I can't afford to lose them from the distillery because I need them here doing stuff. And Sheffield's a really long way away from it. It's six or seven hours drive. And then can the business at that time afford to pay accommodation for seven nights? Because if anyone's going away for seven nights, I'd rather it was me. And it's, um, it was that kind of thing. So for me, building this education and resource center so that we can host courses, have people come in and do things, have people from all over Wales and, and England nearby come and learn with us and use the distillery and have this as a resource center. That for me, I'm very excited about that. It's like your path has gone in this. I yeah. keep coming up with these really annoying. <laughs> oh, it's like an analogy. But you walked around Wales. You've walked back into yeah. this kind of teaching thing. Like it's in your blood, but it, you're doing it your way, which is so cool. Yeah, I think that's it. Is that, yeah, it's that I love teaching. I love it. I love sharing what I know with other people. I love learning from other people. As a student, I loved reading and that kind of formal learning. But actually now, especially after the last two years, where we've not seen anyone. I, I like being with people and learning and seeing and doing and those sorts of things. And if I can share that with other people, then that for me is the thing that probably makes me the most like professionally happy and personally happy as well as I am. Congratulations on finding it, first of all. It's not always an easy thing <laughs> no, to do. No. And the success so far. And just to remind everybody, it's Ellen from In the Welsh Wind. Thank you for being with me today. I've really loved hearing your story. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.